Stephen Avery murdered Teresa Halbach. He is right where he belongs. He's going to die uh, in prison. And until that changes, uh, I think uh, Zellner and everybody on that side should leave the Halbach family alone. With USA Today Network Wisconsin, I'm Shane Nyman. And I'm Doug Schneider. This is Making a Mania, the Stephen Avery saga and why we're obsessed. One, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. It's a podcast exploring why the case made famous and making a murderer grab the attention of the world and hopefully what we can learn from it. By now, we've all seen the Netflix series. We know the ins and the outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Reddit sleuth, or maybe you buzz through the episodes like any other series. Whatever the case, we all know the story, and we're not here to rehash that. What we are here to do is pull back on the series, the case, and the surrounding mania to see what we can learn. There's a great deal of interest and a lot of layers. We'll peel them back and examine them like nobody else has. He still gets death threats, maybe not as many, but the ones these days are more specific and more chilling. To supporters of Stephen Avery, he's still the villain. Even though the second season of Making a Murderer sees him play a smaller role in the story, Avery's supporters still view him as the evil prosecutor who put their guy behind bars, possibly for life. He no longer practices law, but he remains actively engaged with developments in the case. He's able, and more than willing, to poke holes in the case defense lawyer Kathleen Zellner is trying to build in an effort to win Avery's freedom, or at least get him a new trial. Former Calumet County prosecutor Ken Kratz is no longer directly involved in the cases of Avery and Brendan Dassey, who he prosecuted for the murder of Halbach. But while others on the prosecution side remain silent in response to making a murder, He continues to advocate on behalf of the Halbach family and the people who convicted Avery and Dassey, the investigators, the evidence techs, and of course, himself. I will unapologetically say that until Zellner and Buting and Riccardi and Demos and everybody else um, in their efforts to get these murderers out of prison until they stop lying, until they stop misrepresenting the facts, somebody has to push back. Somebody has to be on the other side. Uh, You know that law enforcement's been unwilling to do that, to even stand up for themselves. The other prosecutors have have been unwilling, and, and really the justice system itself has been unwilling to take this on. Look at the, what happens to me when I when I try to do that. Uh, but because somebody has to, uh, I early on chose to do that. I knew that my texting uh, incident was going to come up. I knew that I was going to be a lightning rod for hate. I had even implored others to stand up for themselves and to talk about the investigation or the prosecution. Um, I said, I'm going to get attacked if I'm the one that does this. I shouldn't be the the voice for that just out of practicality what had happened to me but nobody else would nobody else would would stand up on the other side and so I thought um, it was worth it I knew there was going to be a consequence I didn't know I was going to lose a law firm uh, because of it but uh, but it has been worth it 
somebody has to stand up for the hall box. Somebody has to stand up for the prosecution. And as I always say, somebody has to stand up for the system. This system was not broken to the extent that police officers planted evidence or this system didn't allow for a prosecutor to um, kind of look the other way when there was uh, shady dealings going on or things like that. It didn't happen. This was a tremendous investigation uh, done very, very well by some uh, really talented um, homicide investigators. And the prosecution, I would say, since it's been um, used as a, uh, a teaching tool around the country as uh, one of the best examples of how to handle a high-profile uh, murder case. When we spoke with Kratz for a podcast episode that aired earlier this year, we met a man willing to acknowledge personal failings that saw him lose his law license in a sexting scandal several years after the Avery and Dassey cases ended. He accepted that his arrogance caused some of the vitriol that came his way after that case and only increased once making a murderer began to air. But after part two, which landed on Netflix in October, Kratz is back on the offensive. In a two-hour interview not long after, Kratz was quite critical of Avery's attorneys. He showed he's willing to push back against the case that Zellner, and as he believes the making a murderer filmmakers, are trying to build on Avery's behalf. He knows his case, his point of view hasn't changed. He's, uh, at least in his view, he's working, working the evidence and working off the same evidence that he had in front of him in a, in a trial in 2007. The facts of the case, as far as he's concerned, haven't changed uh, just because somebody did a 20-hour documentary film about it. I think the first time he came in, you're right, he had an opening statement. It was, it, maybe it was just a matter of nerves and being in the newsroom f- for the first time, but he came in very anxious and kind of jittery, and he, it seemed like he had information he wanted to get out before we even asked a question. He kind of just came in and started talking and had points he wanted to lay out, and he had videos he wanted to show us. This time around, he was more comfortable and came in and, and was just more relaxed, and I don't know if that's because he's been doing interviews on this subject now for a handful of years, or if he was just more comfortable being here. And as far from the first time he's come in to talk about this, I mean, he laid out his case in 2007 and has been sticking to it ever since, and that includes 2015 when part one comes out. He's just continuing to hammer the same points. He he has one story and he's stuck to it, and then part two comes out and he's doing interviews and again sticking to the same story. He's had, certainly had a ton of practice talking about the case. Um, it, it might have faded in his, in his memory over time, but certainly with all the, the media coverage and public attention paid to it, he's had a chance to refresh his memory. He's also had a lot more time. He's not, not running a law office. He's not dealing directly with the immediate fallout after season one, although he did mention that the the death threats continue in, in their cause for concern, quite frankly, for, for he and his wife. It almost felt like uh, the two interviews were, were two different versions of Ken Kratz. Um, the most recent one, he seemed like he was back in the courtroom. He's mounting a closing argument to convince a jury that, the, uh, that what the defense said happened didn't happen. 
Sure, he says, Mr. Avery's lawyer says a bullet fragment with no human DNA on it couldn't have killed Teresa, um, he says, mimicking the defense. But then he says, talking about a random bullet doesn't undo all the other evidence that points to Avery as a killer. Kathleen Zellner engages in a form of argument that that you might see in in a high school debate team. Uh, It's called a straw man argument the the concept for your listeners that uh, that weren't in debate in uh, <laughs> in high school is that you first have to misrepresent what it is that the state originally said all right and her misrepresentation was her claim is that the state had said the bullet found in the garage item FL the bullet with the DNA on it um, must have passed through Teresa's head, must have gone through her skull. And apparently, uh, Zellner comes to this conclusion when we had presented evidence that there were two entry wounds uh, in uh, Teresa's skull, that there were two bullets found. Therefore, apparently, uh, her argument is that Mr. Kratz must have then suggested that um, the bullet found was one of the ones that went through the head. And that's absolutely false. When you look at the transcript, I told the jury, you're not going to know how many times she was shot because <clears throat> there's 10 shell casings. Uh, so, so, so you're not going to know where these bullets came from. And certainly a 22 bullet that is found in the kind of condition that it was is unlikely to have gone through uh, two different masses of, of bone, of, of, of skull. Um, we believed that uh, uh, 22 caliber bullets, as happens with most um, gunshot uh, wounds to the head, um, doesn't leave the skull at all. It enters um, and it kind of bounces around, I guess, uh, insensitive way of saying it, but there are no exit wounds noted. Leslie Eisenberg said that, the anthropologist. There's two entrance wounds, but there's no exit wounds that we found on on any of the skulls. So for Zellner to now claim that it was the state's theory that that bullet went through uh, bone is made up. It's made up of whole cloth. It is absolutely made up by her. But she says it as if it's just a given. Let's take a second to bring listeners up to speed in case they haven't watched the whole second season. This is a good time to offer a quick warning. Um, There are some minor spoilers. Um, You might want to be on high alert. So here we go. The 10 new episodes of Making a Murderer trace the efforts by Avery's defense team to knock down the case against their client. Zellner and her team attempt, one by one, to disprove key elements of Kratz's case from the 2007 trial. Essentially, you can, you can boil Zellner's case down to four points. That cell phone records show Halbach left Avery's property alive. That her body couldn't have been burned in Avery's fire pit. She also claims that police planted Avery's blood and his DNA in Halbach's car. And that there's, quote, evidence, unquote, that other people committed the murder. Okay, of those elements... Which of those is the strongest and weakest point that Zellner's making? I think the weakest of them is the 
planting of the blood evidence because that requires somebody breaking into Stephen Avery's trailer while his blood is still on the sink and wet and using a dropper and then collecting flakes and then finding Teresa's vehicle and shaving the flakes onto the carpet and also dripping or smearing the blood on the inside of the vehicle and that comes off as far-fetched to me. To say the least, the element that that didn't impress me was the cell phone argument. We know that a cell phone signal pinging a tower is proof of nothing more really than a cell phone pinging a tower. You can prove things like a person's direction of travel using a series of pings if you know for sure that that person had the phone. Zellner claims it means Halbach left the property headed west and that somehow means that Avery couldn't have been the killer. But we don't know if Halbach even had the phone or somebody else had the phone or merely, or merely if there was an issue with a closer cell phone tower. I actually found the blood evidence interesting. Both sides use experts, and those experts reach opposite conclusions. From Zellner's perspective, the fact that Avery's blood is in multiple places, but not the seemingly logical one, the steering wheel, shows that someone planted the blood in the car. For Kratz, on the other hand... The, um, the defense and, and the filmmakers do this a lot. They equate the absence of evidence as if it is just as strong as the presence of evidence. A good example of that is the blood in the SUV. They say, I know Stephen's blood is in six different places in the SUV, but it's not on the steering wheel. Well, how come? There's no explanation for that, right? And that's what you keep hearing them say. There, there will be blood on the steering wheel. I could come up with 10 explanations for it in about three seconds. How about he wiped off the steering wheel when he was done? Well, there's an explanation. And, uh, and the fact that he didn't in the dark car on the dashboard and maybe some of the other little droplets that, uh, that were left, his blood was found in six different places in the SUV, but it was deposited in four different ways. All right. Nick Stalky, who is our blood spatter expert, I talked about uh, the different ways that uh, this blood was deposited. One was a, a swiping motion. One was a, um, a gravity or just a, um, uh, droplets from, uh, from active bleeding. One showed cast off or velocity. Uh, it was the blood uh, in the back uh, cargo area. Uh, but, but there was also this contact transfer stain. And that was the one by the uh, by the dash that is so important uh, because that can only happen if somebody's actively bleeding. All this right. is the one kind of between the steering <coughs> column and the radio. Near the ignition uh, area. And, uh, and that can only happen with, uh, with active bleeding. In fact, their, uh, their expert, I believe, talked about, well, if blood was dripping down his finger and actually on the finger, not the cut itself, it... Uh, it it very well would leave that kind of a that kind of a mark, and so it's I think nothing um, nothing more sinister than uh, Avery tried to clean up where he could, and he was going to crush that car. The Kratz approach is essentially Occam's razor. the The idea that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. By contrast, Zellner seems to be working to create reasonable doubt. What any good defense lawyer would do. Only this time she can't do it in court, at least not now. Essentially, she doesn't need to score a hit with every element she presents. 
She just needs the right one or two to seem plausible enough to get the case back before a judge. So far, she's been unsuccessful. Her 1,200-page motion that Halbach's ex-boyfriend is the real killer was rejected by a judge in a seven-page ruling. That boyfriend, Ryan Hillegas, has never been charged with anything in this case. Police decided pretty quickly he was not a suspect. Zellner later claimed toward the end of the second season that Bobby Dassey, one of Brendan's brothers, is the real killer because violent pornographic images were found on a computer he'd used. She's also gone on the attack against a number of lawyers who were involved in the case. She argues that Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, you'll recall they figured prominently in the first 10 episodes, provided Avery with an inadequate defense. She refers to Len Kaczynski as, quote, a joke. He represented Dassey but wasn't at the interrogation where Dassey admitted playing a role in the assault on Halbach. It's not entirely surprising that Kratz and Zellner disagree significantly over evidence. He views these cases as successful prosecutions while she's arguing that not only did you convict the wrong guy, but we have evidence that shows who the real killer is. A couple of things that Kratz said surprised me, though, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if these struck you the same way. One for me was that he chose to dispute the series portrayal of Avery as a, quote, poor defendant since he he'd recently won a $400,000 settlement for Manitowoc County for his wrongful conviction in a 1985 rape case. Essentially, though, Avery never touched that settlement. It went straight to his lawyers to fight the Halbach murder charge. The big surprise, though, was that the attorney whose work Kratz praised the most was Kaczynski, the guy who'd allowed police to question Dassey without a lawyer being present. Kratz says Kaczynski negotiated a fair, reasonable plea deal for Dassey, who Kratz clearly views as an accessory to a crime committed by his uncle Stephen. But then Avery's family talked Brendan out of taking the deal. I had offered Brendan Dassey a deal, as you know, uh, before, uh, before going to trial. Brendan Dassey was offered to spend as little as 15 years in prison in exchange for truthful testimony. That's referenced in season two where Len Kaczynski says if he'd, if he'd agreed to testify, he could have cut his, cut his sentence in half. For all of the criticism that Len Kaczynski gets in this case, and much of it is deserved, Len brings that on himself. Uh, but Len Kaczynski was the only one, it seemed, that was looking out for Brendan. He knew this was a confession murder case and that a plea was Brendan's best case. He negotiated a very good plea, by the way, that Brendan accepted. A lot of people don't know that. We were going to go into court and take a plea uh, from Brendan. Um, and it wasn't uh, his lawyers that talked him out of it. It wasn't really even Brendan himself. It was his own family. It was his grandfather who had called him and told him, don't take the plea bargain suggesting that it would hurt both of you guys. The real person that the grandparents were concerned about was Stephen. They were willing to sacrifice Brendan's plea to sacrifice Brendan in order to give Stephen a better chance at an acquittal. Think about that. A 16-year-old developmentally disabled kid is going to his family looking for assistance. And rather than um, his parent and his grandparents providing him good, solid advice that's going to help him on his case. They were seeing uh, what they could do to minimize any negativity 
towards Stephen's case, and that included telling him not to take the plea bargain. What do they say now to him? What do they say now when, like next year, Brendan would be out? Brendan, if he would have accepted uh, the deal, uh, would have been living his normal adult life, had most of his adult life uh, available to him. But when they told him that you've got to go to trial, um, it was the worst advice that anybody could give Brendan. Len Kaczynski was right. It was a confession murder case. He was going to be convicted, and when he was, he was going to get life imprisonment, which is the only sentence that there could be. So I think um, his family uh, did Brendan an incredible disservice, and I've got a lot of sympathy for Brendan about that. I think having Ken Kratz come in for a second time, it was just another reminder of the human devastation that's been caused by what happened in October of 2005. It's, it's, a, it's a window into all of these lives that have just been steamrolled um, and continue to, I mean, they continue to be just driven over again and again as the years go by and as the Netflix series continues to produce new episodes. We, we spoke earlier about whether, whether it was good or bad that this, this series, this documentary, this movie, as Dean Strang called it, happened and I'm I'm on the side of it was was it was more positive than negative but it rolled up a number of casualties along the way you've got people you know what what's going on with with Ryan Hillegas anytime a potential employer googles his name here's a famous lawyer filing a 1200 page brief that says he committed a vicious murder and got away with it. Does he deserve that? No, no way. And and others were were sacrificed for the the telling of this story. It, it's it's something that isn't necessarily unique to this, but on a on a grander scale, you've got attorneys and law enforcement officials who who don't feel safe in their own homes because. They're getting anonymous death threats that may be from around the world or that may be from your same neighborhood. That's that's one thing here. Um, you know, Strang and, Strang and Buting were dedicated Wisconsin defense lawyers, and now are they that? Are they authors? Are they are they speakers? Um, you know, there's there's a whole lot of lives that were changed by this and things that people will never get back. I, I look at Brendan Dassey and if he ever gets out, he will, you know, be it through release or parole or he serves the balance of his sentence. He will always be Brendan Dassey, comma, who and associated with a horrible crime. And that's that's something about this. There is a real human toll with this series in a lot of it is is not pretty, um, and and more so you have the Hallbach family who lost a a, a daughter, a sister, uh, a, a loved one that they can never get back, no matter how this ends. And this is just a a 
a reopening of those those wounds for for them. I can't imagine what it's like to lose someone to a horrible, violent crime, but then to have to be reminded of it over and over and over again in all these different ways years later when hopefully you've had a chance to heal, to recover, to move forward. You never forget, but maybe time helps you you dull some of the pain and, and you're able to move on from that. Does this story ever end? I ask that because if one or both of these guys gets out, then that means there's a killer or killers running around, right? Right. I think that's something that making a murderer viewers have to come to grips with is the fact that they will, we will never know what actually happened. It's something I think I got a handle on after watching the first season is there's never going to be a clean ending to this as much as it's a a riveting true crime story it's a mystery we want to know who done it but we're never going to and you just have to come to terms with that even if even if they get out you're right there's a killer on the loose if they stay in they could be innocent they could be guilty we don't know the justice system is is flawed it's imperfect you'd like to think that it does the best that it can but in the end you never really know learn more about this podcast making a murderer and the cases of Stephen avery and brendan dassey at postcrescent.com where our journalists have been reporting on these topics for years and don't forget subscribe rate and review us on itunes Making Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen and Jim Rosendick recorded and edited the podcast. Other audio comes from the USA Today Network Wisconsin Archive.